case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue, sick virtue signaling, fake news crate. Yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. I am Matthew McGregor, Hope Not Hate's campaign director, and I'm joined by... Joe Mulhall, uh, senior researcher. I wasn't expecting you to come to me then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do enough of your work already. Uh, I thought you could introduce yourself. We are uh, here to talk about an article that that Joe has has written. It's been published uh, today uh, by the Government's Countering Extremism Commission, uh, it's a phenomenally long article. Um, uh, I've read it and it's fantastic. It's a really, really interesting read, but it is quite simply the longest tweet thread in in history. So we thought we'd have a, a quick podcast special to uh, chat about the, the 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 contents of the article. Joe, you've written um, this article, modernizing and mainstreaming the far right uh, about the far right. Uh, let's just start off. Give us your, your sort of potted non 4000 word version of the of the, <laughs> of the argument you're making i think it's 6000 words actually <laughs> but for most people that isn't too long it's just the digital team that that's too long because uh, it doesn't fit in the twitter box but um generally speaking the, the arguments the the point of the article really was to start to try and understand why is it that last year in 2018 we saw such large far right demonstrations in the uk when we saw you know upwards of over or over 10,000 people sometimes maybe 15,000 people on the streets of london um, so rallied around a far-right cause. Um, so these demonstrations were probably the biggest far-right demonstrations in the post-war period, uh, sort of since the 30s. And, and the idea was to set out and find why. And so the article essentially argues that, as well as you know the complex reasons for all of these things, one of the things we need to understand is, is that the far-right has changed. And it tracks the journey of the far-right through the post-war period to today and says, what is it that they're talking about right now and then what we did was is we took those issues and we did polling on them in society and said, how popular are they? And really worryingly, the three big things that they were most interested in or most talked about last year, the far right, so that was Muslims and Islam. Um, it was kind of like an anti-political elite idea, this kind of populist notion, and this idea of a suppressed free speech. When you poll on those issues, they're really, really popular. So it's essentially arguing that one of the contributing factors to this really, really healthy large far right we're seeing at the moment is they have adopted a platform which chimes with much wider public consciousness than the traditional far right would have and reading the article one thing that kind of chilled me a little bit was trying to answer the question have has the far right mainstreamed mm. or has the mainstream far right <laughs> <laughs> um i could have thought through a better more articulate way of saying that but you know what i mean yeah and obviously it to some extent it's a little bit of both um but where, where do you sit on that yeah i mean i think certainly what we've seen is the far right itself has in, in many ways moderated its tone and, and i don't mean for a second that there were not elements of the far right that are not really extreme that are not holocaust deniers nazis due tradition they're still there I'm, I'm really in this article talking about the bulk or the kind of ecosystem around people like stephen lennon or tommy robinson um, that sort of area of the far right, rather than your national actions, etc. I'm not for a second pretending they've moderated. But what we've actually seen is, is that the ones that haven't moderated are tiny and marginalised, and the ones that have are much larger. And really, you can trace this journey through the BNP, or even it really starts with the National Front, and it starts with this modernisation process, where, and then through Nick Griffin and the BNP, where they start talking about, you know, don't talk about hobbyism or Hitler or hard talk in public. 
They start to moderate their image, trying to find a language and a politics that will be more acceptable in society. Um, but of course, the further you go down that line, the more, in some ways, like honest it becomes. The EDL were more honest or more real about that than the BNP. But when you, you know, the EDL talked about itself as a human rights organisation. Of course, on the ground, when you went to the events, they were not a human rights organisation. There was still a broad racism there. Um, but each time what you essentially see is you see them getting rid of the more broad anti-immigrant racism, anti-black racism in its broad sense and becoming a much more narrow focused it's about Muslims and Islam. And that's chimed with when the question is, you know, has the mainstream far right or, or vice versa around Islam and Muslims? There is a broad societal prejudice there, which is deeply, deeply concerning. And while Hope Not Hate's polling over the last 10 years has shown attitudes getting better in many ways towards immigration more generally, Islam and Muslims are seen as different. And the far right has understood that. And they've talked less and less about immigration, less and less about black people, Jews, and they talk more and more about Muslims. They're both chiming that. And of course that becomes a feedback cycle. The more they talk about it, the more people are concerned about it in society and vice versa. I want to come back and talk about the historical comparisons to this kind of cycle of modernization, if you, if you want to call it that. But I think one thing that's really important to um, to to kind of analyze and confront is to what extent this you know moderation, um, the move away from anti-black racism, dropping some of the anti-immigration rhetoric, is principled and genuine versus a, just a, a clever tactical ruse. The example I always use is Gert Wilder's uh, 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 rhetoric around gay rights. To what extent, or or does it kind of depend on individuals and depend on? Yeah, exactly. It's a re- it's the most important question, and it depends on where. Now, for most of the post-war period, it's utterly contrived, right? So, if you even if you go back to the the forties and the fifties, you've got Oswald Mosley and the Union Movement. Um, they're talking about the Jews and anti-Semitism after the war, and as you start to have non-white immigration through the fifties, you have West Indians arriving, etc. There is a societal prejudice, societal racist backlash against those communities. And you start to see the union movement realise actually that's going to play much better than talking about Jews. So they start to talk about immigration from black countries, uh, or sorry, from black communities. Um, and then you start to see it again when you see the National Front and the BNP start to look at it and turn around and say, oh, you know, especially post the Salman Rushdie affair, um, but also especially post 9-11, it's really contrived. They start to say, OK, it's actually just about Muslims because they see that's going to bear fruit in a way that talking about other communities might not so much. It becomes more complex with something like the English Defence League. Um, it was a, it's a racist movement. It was an Islamophobic and a racist movement. But, you know, the question of, is Tommy Robinson secretly a Nazi? No, I mean, the evidence doesn't seem to suggest that he is secretly, a, you know, like a swastika under the bed. Um, if you ask questions around, you know, a lot of those demonstrations, you would see non-white people on those demonstrations. And it's, um, while, of course, there were some people that would be angry about that, the leadership don't have this kind of secret anti-black racism. For them it is, they are anti-Muslim racists. And I think we saw that a lot last summer um, in these big demonstrations we saw, and we saw some of it as well with the Football Lads Alliance, which were not universally far right, but there was large contingents that were. Um, they were often multi-ethnic, there would, would be gay people on the demonstrations, um, there would be Israeli flags on there, something that would the National Front would have obviously not, not, not done. Um, so there are differing levels of its genuineness. Now, it's not to say that this is not a racist movement right now, of course it is, but I think it would be wrong to say that it's like traditionally fascist or secretly fascist because the evidence doesn't bear that out. And 
And as anti-fascists, the danger is, is we end up fighting them like we would have the National Front, talking about them as Nazis and fascists when you're on a demonstration in central London and there's a gay man on the stage and there's a black person in the audience and you're screaming Nazi, it's not going to work. It doesn't look right. Um, it's not to say we don't disagree with them and we don't vehemently disagree with them, but we have to understand what this threat looks like now. And that's what this article is setting out to do, is saying what, what is it that they're talking about? What does this movement actually look like? I know the article itself is, is about the UK and the, the far right in the UK, but um, <clears throat> just as you're speaking, a lot of the things that you're, you're talking about uh, bring Trump to mind and the increasingly extreme rhetoric, uh, overt racism, um, and obviously not just the rhetoric, but the policies that are being enacted in the internment camps they've got at the borders and, and, and so on. To what extent do you think that once you scratch the surface, you know, it's not it's not that hard to get some of these people to say the quiet part out loud, if you like. Um, you know, I think we, we, we saw that a little bit with uh, Stephen Lennon, some of the videos that have been leaked from his WhatsApp account mm -hmm. of him uh, using racial slurs. Um, to what extent do you think that there is like a, an actual group of people who are, as you say, modernising versus this a, a group of people who are a bit more extreme? Is it is it the kind of Brexit party on one mm. Uh, side of the line and Stephen Lennon just on the other side of the line but they're quite close together so it's difficult to see the difference yeah well I mean in, in many ways it's about kind of you know front of house back of house as the kind of the literature on it would talk about you know is, is like what is what they're presenting to the public the reality of what they're saying behind now all of them present a more moderate image publicly than probably reality or the vast majority do as we say you said Stephen Lennon's the leaked videos there explicitly racist in a way that he wouldn't be on stage um, I think we've seen that a lot and I think that goes for a lot of what we've seen across Europe, whether or not that's the Front National in France, the Swedish Democrats in Sweden, AFD in Germany, um, Liga in Italy. There has been uh, like an image of moderation and modernization, which doesn't necessarily kind of shields a, a core which remains quite extreme. And I think that's probably the same with Tommy Robinson. That said, as I say, that what we what I argue in the article is that that core only goes so far. I mean, I don't think that secretly, as I say, he's a he's a secret anti-Semite. I don't think he's a secret, you know, Nazi and un, under all of this sort of stuff. The evidence doesn't suggest that. Um, he's probably much more extreme in terms of his racism around Muslims and uh, non-white people in general than he lets on. But he's not a secret Nazi. Mm. And just last thing, last point. I want to keep this short, um, shorter than the article anyway. Uh, <laughs> Um, just to, to wrap up, I want to talk about uh, leave the far right to one side and talk about the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is frightening that it isn't just that the far right have moved towards the mainstream, it's that the mainstream has moved towards the far right. Um, we've seen that in the polling we talked about in the last episode of the Home Night Hate podcast uh, of Conservative Party members who hold really quite shocking views about uh, Muslims, Islamophobic myths about no-go areas and Sharia law and so on. To what extent do you think that that is a, a you know, a big structural change in in society? Of opinions are moving towards the far right, or is it just that those are isolated, challenging opinions about Muslims, and it doesn't reflect a, a broader move towards the far right? So it de it depends what you mean. If you look at say like the traditional platform of the far right, so around like extreme homophobia, um, more like explicit anti-black racism or broad racism, anti-immigration racism, I still think. Um, for, for everything we're worried about in terms of like the anti-fascist consensus in society crumbling a little bit, I think those things still remain beyond the pale, most of them. 
I think if a politician came out and was really you know openly at the race in the way that Trump perhaps was in America last week, if they did that in the UK, I, th- I still think there would be a huge outrage in the UK. But that is not the case when it comes to Islam. And this is a kind of this is broad across society. I mean, the polling in this article shows just fifteen percent of people place immigration and asylum amongst the top three most important issues facing their families. Um, that's gone down like quite significantly. Yet simultaneously, ten percent of the people we polled have very strong negative views about Muslims. That's like double any other religious group or any other minority. So, what we're seeing here in, in sight is that I don't think when we talk about mainstreaming of the far right, I don't think it's necessarily now it's just acceptable to be violently racist in a way that uh, some people say it is. But it, that is the case when it comes to Islam and Muslims. That is different. People can get away with far more than they could with other communities, and. Um, that's exactly why the far right in some ways are being really successful at the moment because that's the platform they're hammering on. That's what they're talking about and that's what people are worried about. Um, and I think we can trace that back to 9-11 and beyond. You know. I, can't, I really can't recommend this article um, enough. It's going to be on our website uh, if it isn't already and we'll include a link in the description to this uh, podcast. It's a, it's a really fascinating read and, and puts so much of the day-to-day nonsense that we hear from Stephen Lennon and others on the far right in a, in a broad historical context. Really, really interesting analysis. I really strongly recommend uh, that uh, Home Not Hate supporters uh, read it and, and share it. Um, please also uh, rate, review and share the podcast uh, uh, reviews on the uh, whichever podcast platform you use. Uh, help new people to uh, find the podcast um, and to uh, hear the things we're talking about. I also want to be, give, a, give a big shout out to all members of the Hope Action Fund. The support that our members uh, uh, give us, uh, help us to do the research and the analysis and the uh, disruption work that we do uh, tracking the far right. Thanks to you for listening and thanks Joe for joining us. No problem.